today on After God's Heart. God told Joshua to walk around the city walls of Jericho one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. Now, after the sixth time around the city, on the seventh day, nothing had happened. The really, the, the most you could say is they have sore feet and a lot of strange looks. They've walked around for a week now, 12 times around the city, and nothing has happened, and nothing did happen until they finished walking around the seventh time. Because partial obedience will never accomplish God's complete purpose. Welcome to After God's Heart with Dr. Darren Biles, author, professor, and pastor of Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. The Hebrew word for sin means to miss the mark. The images of an archer shooting at a target and missing it. In Nehemiah 9, the Israelites are just now realizing they have missed the mark of God's expectations of them. In the passage, we see how genuine worship recalibrated them. In Nehemiah 8, they were confronted in their sin. In Nehemiah 9, they obediently responded. As Dr. Biles continues his series entitled Rise Up, we see how the children of Israel confront a challenge to rise up in obedience. Dr. Biles? Nehemiah 9 pictures a moment when Israel got worship right. There's an obedient response to the Word of God, confession of sin, authentic prayer, and even an invitation. The text is highlighted by a lengthy list of attributes of God expressed to him in worshipful response. It's a moment when Israel compared who they were with who God wanted them to be and recognized how far they fell short. In this passage, they responded by rising up in obedience. Now, take your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, and let's learn a lesson about how we can rise up in obedience. Every once in a while, you come across a Bible passage that intrigues you. It kind of sticks in your mind like a splinter, and you can't really quite grasp everything that you think God is teaching in that passage. And so not long ago, I was reading again through this passage in 2 Kings 13. It's about the prophet Elisha. Elisha was the successor to the prophet Elijah and did really some of the most remarkable miracles in all of the Old Testament. Elisha, the prophet. The scene in 2 Kings 13 is near the end of Elisha's life. It's really the last narrative before his death. The king of Israel heard that Elisha was sick and went to visit him. The king's name was Jehoash. He was an evil king, but God wanted to do something through Jehoash, despite the fact that he didn't serve him. So Elisha took him over to the window, opened up the window, had a bow in the king's hand, and Elisha placed his hand on the king's hand and said, shoot. The king shot an arrow out and said, so will God bring victory for Israel in the remote parts of the country. And he said, now I want you to, I want you to hit the ground in front of you. Some commentators think he was actually just stabbing it with his hand. Some think he was shooting it out the window into the ground right in front of him. And the Bible says the king shot three times and stopped shooting, and Elisha was angry. And that's sort of the end of the narrative, and, and you, you kind of scratch your head and you wonder, why is Elisha angry? Because the very next thing that the Bible says is Elisha died. So I was looking at that text, realizing there's something remarkable going on here. First, 
God is prophesying victory in the far country, but then he's also prophesying victory here at home. And the king shot three times. And Elisha was angry. Why did you stop? And the best that I can figure is, however large his quiver was, his quiver was not yet empty when he finished shooting. Somewhere, he stopped short of full obedience. It strikes me how often that might be true in our own lives as we fall short of full obedience. He stopped short. He stopped shooting too soon. And I wonder if that's not a picture of our own lives if we stop short. God told Joshua to walk around the city walls of Jericho one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. Now, after the sixth time around the city, on the seventh day, nothing had happened. The, really, the, the most you could say is they have sore feet and a lot of strange looks. They've walked around for a week now, 12 times around the city, and nothing has happened, and nothing did happen until they finished walking around the seventh time. Because partial obedience will never accomplish God's complete purpose. When I fall short of what God intends, of what God expects, of what God desires of me, I'll never see God's full blessing. But when they walked around the wall the seventh time, they shouted and the ground began to shake and God brought the walls down when they were obedient. It was the lesson God was trying to teach Saul in 1 Samuel 15 through the prophet Samuel. Saul had disobeyed the Lord, but thought he would appease God by offering God a sacrifice, sort of bribing God to overcompensate for his disobedience. And Samuel came to Saul and said to him the words, God desires obedience over sacrifice. God wants your yes even more than he wants your amen. God wants your obedience to be complete. It's the lesson that we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. We continue our series through the book of Nehemiah entitled Rise Up. What we're going to see from this passage this morning is Nehemiah. The prophet Ezra and the leaders are calling the people to rise up in obedience. Take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 1. I want you to see that Nehemiah 9, 1 begins a 9-1-1 call of God's people to God. On the 24th day of the month, the Israelites assembled and they were fasting, wearing sackcloth and put dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood in their places and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. 
They spend another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. The passage begins with a response and then finishes with the description of why that response was necessary. As the leaders now gather three weeks after the spiritual awakening that we looked at last week in chapter 8, they have returned hoping to hear another word from the Lord. They've returned to hear the Word of God read and explained, but they've returned for an even greater purpose. Despite the fact that the walls had been built and the solemn assembly had already taken place, now, three weeks later, the people come back realizing there is still more spiritual work that needs to be done. Nehemiah 9 is a picture of a worship service. Begins with fasting, there's mourning, there's reading of God's Word, confession of sin, prayer, and it ends with an invitation. And we get to the end of the lengthy chapter 9, a, a long prayer that Ezra probably leads the people, the longest prayer in the Bible. And you come to the highlight of Ezra's prayer in verse 17. Ezra calls out, they did not obey and they did not remember. From that point in the story, you begin to realize that obedience becomes the theme of the prayer that Ezra was praying. Look further in verses 25 and 26. You blessed them, but they did not obey. Verses 27 and 28. You saved them, but they did not obey. Verse 29. You warned them, but they did not obey. Verse 30. You were patient with them, but they did not obey. And over and over again, Ezra is calling out their sin. He's calling out their need for God, but rehearsing the history of their disobedience. And it was that realization that caused the people to come back to the place of worship, the place where they'd met God, fall down before Him in obedience. And I want to see from Nehemiah chapter 9 a picture of how to respond in obedience to God what it means to rise up in obedience to the Lord, what it means to stand in our faith, for our faith, despite the fact that we have sinned and violated God's command, we come back in obedience to the Lord. And we learn, first of all, that obedience to God means grieving over our sin. Verse 1 is a picture of their mourning over sin. Note, the fasting, the sackcloth, and the dust on their heads, literally earth that they've picked up and thrown on their heads as a sign of their great grief before the Lord. Their grief over what grieves God. Their mourning over where they have failed Him. Their mourning becomes a sign of their spiritual maturity. Because the closer you get to Christ, the more you hate sin. When sin no longer bothers us, it seems less sinful. We discover our need to return. God 
spoke out in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, and said, My people don't even know how to blush. They no longer grieve over their sin. They no longer mourn over their sin. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Happy are those who are sad, Jesus said. But he's not just talking about walking around as though you're sad all the time. Blessed are those who mourn, who are convicted by their sin. Blessed, Jesus said, are those who grieve over their sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow leads to repentance. We see that here in Nehemiah chapter 9 where we grieve over where we have failed Him, where we're affected by the sin that has become characteristic of our lives. And note what the people of Israel, who now are not prompted, but merely hearing the Word of God brings conviction. It brings mourning and grief and fasting and sackcloth and dust on their heads. And obedience means grieving over our sin. But note, secondly, obedience to God means separation from our sin because it's not enough just to be sorry about our sin. It's not enough to be sad that we've been caught. It's not enough to be guilty that we have sinned. Sin demands separation. Note what the Bible says. They separated themselves. We saw a few weeks ago how the word holy in the Bible means to be separate. It may describe characteristic attributes, but at its core, the word holiness means to separate. We separate from things and we separate to someone. We separate from that which divides us from God. We separate over that which separates us from Him. And you'll note that the children of Israel, upon the hearing of the Word of God and the conviction that began to set in, realized there are things in our lives from which we need to separate. I need to distance myself from these activities, from these thoughts. I need to separate from them to separate to Him. Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Children of Israel model for us a separation that is necessary Certainly doesn't mean we isolate ourselves from the world. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5. But it does mean that we separate ourselves from some of the practices of the world. It does mean that we isolate ourselves from the sin that so easily entangles us. It does mean we separate from them because the Bible says don't love the things of the world or the things in it. Paul said have no fellowship with works of darkness 2 Corinthians 6, come out of them and be separate. Separation is not an excuse for spiritual arrogance. We're not better than the world because we've been forgiven. There's a difference between hating sin and hating the sinner. We must turn from evil, even call out evil, but we must not sin in calling out sin. We separate from sin. Because obedience to God means separation. But I want you to know, thirdly, obedience to God also means confession of our sin. It is not just the grief 
the awareness of our sin. It is not just the separation from it. It is the calling out of it. It is not simply enough to be aware of our sin or to be aware that God is aware of our sin. Confession must be made. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, but confession is necessary. And after they separated, the Bible says they confessed. There was a period of time that the Bible recounts of their confession. They stood, confessed their sin, confessing the sin of their fathers, the sin that has so easily encumbered us, the sin that has affected us. It's been in our heritage. It's been in our families. It's been in our lives. And we call it out and we confess. The word confess means to give voice to. It means to express. It means I call out my sin. It's not just feeling bad about my sin. It is apologizing to God, the one whom we have offended. It is the admission of our guilt. It is saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. Confession of our sin. Confession is not something that we complete when we come to God by faith. It's not that we come to God by faith through Jesus Christ, we confess our sin, and all of a sudden we're done with that and we can go on and not have to worry about that confession thing again. But the reality is, now this is three weeks after the spiritual awakening, they're still being convicted about their sin. They're still coming back before God and confessing the continual faith, the regular turning away from sin. We have sin. He is a forgiving God. You've fallen, but you can get up. The Bible reminds us how far we have failed, but repentance is turning away from that sin, and it is turning to Him. Note their confession was specific. Verse 16, they confessed their pride. Verse 18, they confessed their idolatry. Verse 26, they confessed their rebellion. Verse 16 and 17, we've hardened our necks. We were disobedient. We sinned and stiffened our necks. We've done wickedly. And over and over again, they're reminding themselves as they call out their sin to God, we have been disobedient. You come to the end of this chapter and watch what happens as you get to verse 36, 37. Here we are. We're slaves in the land you gave us. Someone else owns the land you gave us. We're slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Your intention was that our people, our ancestors, we would enjoy the fruit of this land, but now we're slaves in it. Look at verse, verse 37. Its abundant harvest goes to their kings that you set over us because of our sin. Here's what they're saying. You gave this land to us and they took it from us because of our sin, and they are now enjoying our blessings. We're giving away the blessings you intended for us because of our sin. They have our stuff. They have our blessing because our sin has distanced us from God and we call out our sin. The one thing they were good at was sinning. But the Bible tells us that we've all sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's, that's me, that's, that's all of us. We, we've all sinned 
and fallen short of God's glory. The very first thing Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because he knew that the one thing that they needed in that moment was forgiveness. We need God's grace. We need God's forgiveness because fundamentally at our core, we are sinful and we need God's grace. But there's good news because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. God is bigger than your failure. Your failure doesn't surprise God, but your sin demands repentance. Verse 17, the people call out to God, we have sinned, but you are a forgiving God. We've sinned. We know we've sinned. We know where we've failed. We know how many times we have failed you, but you, God, are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. You are gracious and merciful. Our sin must be mourned, but our sin must be confessed. I wonder this morning if there's sin in your life that needs to be confessed. Because obedience to God demands confession. Note, fourthly, as we move on, obedience to God means turning away from our sin. It means doing something different than we were doing previously. It means looking back to God and turning to His Word for our lives. Look what the Bible says, now they have confessed before God their sin and the sin of their fathers. And then verse 3, they stood in their places and they read from the book of the law their God for a fourth of the day. Now that might be six hours, it might be three hours, depends on how you characterize a day. A day might be 12 hours, if that's the case. They now read the Bible three hours. If it means a 24-hour day, they read the Bible six hours. They're just hearing God's Word. But they're not just listening to the Word of God as though they want to curiously understand what it says. They are now attempting to determine the course of their lives based on what God's Word says because confession is never complete until I've changed my behavior. Until I have now reoriented my life in submission to the Word of God. Because the Bible is our standard. The Bible is our authority. Everything else is just your opinion. The Word of God is the authority of our lives. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here the people now presenting themselves before God. God, we've sinned. We humble ourselves before you and before your word. And they read the word. They heard the word. And now they begin to change their lives based on the truth of God's word. And you come to the end of chapter 10, where their covenant is being publicly demonstrated. Look at chapter 10. Look what the Bible says in chapter 10, verse 29. They joined with their noble brothers to commit themselves with a solemn oath to follow the law of God. They committed their lives to do what the Bible says. Part of their commitment 
was not just coming back to God and confessing their sin, but their promise to live their lives according to what the Word of God says. Their desire was to hear God's Word and to do it because obedience to God demands turning from our sin. The book of Nehemiah is about more than just rebuilding walls. It's about strengthening our relationship with God. At this point in the story, the walls are completed and the people are celebrating what God has accomplished through them. Nehemiah 9 is a worship service. The chapter begins as the leaders are challenging the people and the Holy Spirit is challenging us to deal with the sin in our lives. In this episode, we saw how the Word of God challenges us to grieve over our sin and turn away from it. Now, Tune in next week as we continue our appropriate response to God in worship. We've entitled this program, After God's Heart. The name of the program comes from the title of my newest book, After God's Heart. It's a story of the life of David, the challenges, the lessons that we learn from David, and how we can apply those to our lives. We'd love to send you a copy of my book when you support this ministry with your generous gift. Now, here's Ed to give you more details on how you can get a copy of my book. Thanks, Dr. Biles. You can get a copy of After God's Heart today. by contacting Sunnyvale First Baptist Church at 972-226-7105 or sunnyvalefbc.com. You can also write us at 3018 North Beltline Road, Sunnyvale, Texas 75182. Attention after God's heart. And here's a final word from Pastor Darren. Thanks, Ed. If you're ever in the North Texas area, I want to invite you to be our guest at Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. We have Sunday school classes for all ages. Our Worship service on Sunday mornings begins at 10.30. We would love for you and your family to be our guest anytime you are able at Sunnyvale First Baptist Church. Once again, on behalf of Dr. Biles, we want to thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ed Petty, and we'll see you next time on After God's Heart.